Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Yes, indeed, it is another episode of the podcast. This is version 27 of the show. And we got another busy week for you, which was highlighted by Super Bowl 55. And that turned out to be not so super. So we'll definitely get into that. We have plenty of other news and topics and trades from around the various sports. So we'll go ahead and dive right into it. We'll start off in the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's event was the Waste Management Phoenix Open, which was held at TPC Scottsdale in Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a par 71, and the course distance was 7,115 yards. And it was a great tournament. The weather was just absolutely beautiful. And most of the country is facing snow and ice and a lot of cold weather currently. So just to tune tune into that, you know, and see the Arizona weather, sunny. Course looked absolutely immaculate. Made me want to get down to Arizona ASAP. But the most important part of this past weekend was that there were about 5,000 fans in the stands for each day of the tournament. So it was great to see the fans. Uh, They didn't have masks on, kind of free-moving about uh, the holes that they were assigned to. And uh, they had a lot of cheers and roars when players made good shots. So it was just nice to hear that and see that. Just very refreshing and uh, a sign that normalcy is around the corner, if we can just get through these next few months but when it was all said and done your winner was Brooks Kepka with a score of 19 under par now Brooks Kepka is a four-time major champion one of the best golfers in the world and he hadn't won in 18 months he'd been battling uh, he's kind of been dealing with a knee injury on and off he's had surgery on it and he's really not performed well in any tournament that hasn't been a major he's still He's still been able to finish fairly well in the three major championships this last year, but he struggled in non-major events. Uh, He was only three under after the first round, but over the final three rounds this past weekend, he only had three bogeys. On Sunday's final round, he made two eagles, one of which was on the drivable par 4 17th, in which he left it just short right and chipped in for eagle. It was just an incredible chip. As soon as it hit the green and started rolling, you knew it was going to be in. Uh, It was just a beautiful shot. That shot basically won him the tournament uh, because he was able to take the lead by two shots at that point. There was a a two-way tie for second place, and that was Kyung Hoon Lee at 18 under par. And his first three rounds were all five under 66s, And then he turned in a 3-under 68 on Sunday. So he just played good, consistent, kind of under-the-radar golf. Uh, Nobody really knows who he is. Not a big-name golfer, but good, consistent golf. Got him a T2. 
And the other guy at T2 was Xander Shoffley at 18 under. And speaking of consistency, Xander has been the definition of that. Uh, he has came into this tournament with 14 straight top 25 finishes. So make this one 15. And he uh, really moved up the leaderboard on Friday with a 7 under 64 and followed that up on moving day with a 6 under 65. So he was right up there at the end of the third round. Uh, He did shoot an even par on Sunday, but he did get his ninth runner-up finish since the start of the 2017-2018 season, which is the most on tour. Uh, Second place would be Dustin Johnson and Tony Finau with seven runner-up finishes in that same time frame. And oddly enough, both DJ and Finau played over in Abu Dhabi this past weekend on the European tour. DJ won and Finau finished second. But there was a three-way tie for fourth, which is the equivalent of third place based on that second-place tie. Those golfers were Carlos Ortiz, Steve Stricker, and Jordan Spieth. Now, they all finished at 17 under par, two shots back of Kepka. Carlos Ortiz, he, uh, on Sunday, final round, he went out and fired a seven-under round of 64 to move up to the top, and he actually had a share of the lead late before uh, Kepka rattled home that eagle. Now, Steve Stricker, the dude's 53 years old, and he's still slinging it with the young guns. He was the captain of the U.S. Ryder Cup team, and he only had five bogeys all weekend, which was which is really good. And he was sitting at 11 under par after Friday's second round, which is exceptional. Now, Jordan Spieth is the, the other one that finished at 17 under par, and Spieth is a three-time major champion. He's still a young golfer, but he won three majors in his first couple years on tour. Kind of took the tour by storm. Been a top-ranked golfer for a while. His ranking has slid here lately. He just hasn't been able to put together anything good or consistent. Uh, he'll have a good appearance or two, but then kind of disappears. So he's been kind of struggling. So it was nice to see him uh, on the resurgence trail for a little bit here. But he went out Saturday and fired a ridiculous 10 under 61. He had 10 birdies and 18 holes. And he held a share of the 54-hole lead going into Sunday. And on Sunday, Spieth actually went one over. And that was after he was forced to play aggressive kind of late in the round. And he actually plunked a couple in the water. So uh, it was it was just nice to see Jordan Spieth uh, back up near the top of the leaderboard in a in a in a big tournament. Uh, he's fun. He's exciting to watch. And when his putter's on, boy, there's there's really nobody that puts the ball better than Spieth. But and that was a, that was the case on Saturday on that round of 61. But we'll check out my picks to click from this past weekend. Now, last week at the Farmers Insurance Open, I clicked on all three. This weekend, not the case. I, uh, first one I gave you was Daniel Berger. Uh, He had finished tied for ninth year last year, and out of his six trips to TPC Scottsdale, he had finished top 11 uh, in four of them. So he's historically performed well at this course. But he came out round one, went two under, and then followed that up with an even par in round two. So he finished at two under, which actually missed the cut. The cut was three under par, so Berger missed the cut. So I definitely whiffed on that one. 
My second pick to click was Webb Simpson. Uh, he's just been a monster at TPC Scottsdale. He's played here 10 times. He's made the cut in eight of them, has five top 10s, seven top 20s out of those eight finishes, including last year's playoff victory. So he came out in round one and just laid an egg. Uh, he shot two over par, but then he did follow that up with a six under round in round two to get him into the weekend. And then on that weekend, he went four over with a pair of 69s just to stay kind of further on down the leaderboard. He finished at eight under par, which was good for tied for 42nd. So another whiff there on Webb Simpson. But my final pick to click was Xander Shoffley. And I just talked about him. Uh, He finished T2 at 18 under par. This is his 15th straight top 25 finish. And he's just on a roll. I like for Xander this year, bold prediction here, to uh, win one of the four major championships this year. So if you're taking notes, uh, I clicked on one of the three this week. So that's not great. But we'll look ahead this week. The tour heads over to California for the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And that's at the Pebble Beach Golf Links in Pebble Beach, California. It's a par 72 Distance is 7,051 yards. Now, normally, there's celebrities out there and amateurs. They get a little pro-am tournament on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday before the the PGA event starts, and it's a cool little scene. Uh, But this year will be the first time in the 75-year history of the Pebble Beach Pro-Am that there will be no celebrities present for the uh, pre-tour event festivities. Uh, kind of disappointing, but obviously with, with the what we're dealing with here these days, it's completely understandable. But at least we still got some golf. Now, because they're not doing the Pro-Am portion of it, they're only going to be using two golf courses this weekend. Of course, Pebble Beach is one of them. The other that they'll be playing on is Spyglass Hill. That's also a par 72, and that distance is 7,041 yards, so only 10 yards shorter for the entire length of the course than Pebble Beach. But we'll check out my picks to click for this weekend's Pebble Beach Pro-Am. First one I'm going to give you, I just talked about him a little bit ago. It's Jordan Spieth. He's actually ranked number 69th in the world rankings. And he he came off a huge T4 performance last week at TPC Scottsdale. And here at Pebble Beach, he's actually done really well. He's played here eight times. He's made all eight cuts. And he actually won this thing in 2017. Now, out of those eight starts, he has seven top 25s. So he's looking pretty good just based on his historical performance at this course. I think Spieth is is going to be inside the top 25 this week. Now, my second pick to click is going to be Will Zalatoris. He's currently ranked number 49th in the world. And Zalatoris still doesn't have his full tour card yet. Uh, he's was a top-ranked amateur when he was playing on the Corn Ferry Tour, um, but he he seems to keep getting exemptions and uh, whatnot to play because he keeps finishing really well. He has six top 17 finishes in his last eight starts, including four top eights, and he finished tied for 17th last week at TPC Scottsdale and then tied for 7th the week before that at Torrey Pines. So he's been putting together some good rounds. He's a great young golfer, uh, pretty precise, 
And so I like for him, uh, this is his first time at Pebble Beach uh, on the tour, and I like for him to finish inside the top 25. Now, my third pick to click is Patrick Cantlay. He's ranked number 11 in the world. And in his last four starts, dating back to the Zozo Championship, he's finished inside the top 17 in all four of those starts, including a win at the Zozo. He also had a runner-up finish a couple weeks ago at the American Express. His career at Pebble Beach, he's played here four times. He's made all four cuts, and he finished tied for 11th here last year. So he's performed well. I like for Cantlay not only to finish inside the top 25, but I think Cantlay has a very solid chance to win this week. So we'll stay tuned for that. Pebble Beach is always a great spectacle, so be sure... If you're a golf fan, tune into that because it's going to be something to see again this year. But we'll move on to the National Football League and Super Bowl 55. And what the hell happened in that game? Like, it was supposed to be the GOAT versus the new GOAT, baby GOAT, and a good competitive game. The line was only three points. Kansas City was favored by three. Of course, it was NFC champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs. The game was at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. So the Buccaneers had a home game. First time in Super Bowl history that a team has played that game in their home stadium. And before the game even started, there was some news broke news that broke on Friday when Kansas City Chiefs linebacker coach Britt Reed, who's the son of Andy Reed, He was involved in a car crash uh, in Kansas City, which left a five-year-old girl in critical condition. And to make matters worse in all of this, Britt Reed admitted to drinking and taking prescription medication before the crash. So the police are investigating. No charges have been filed as of this uh, episode, uh, but I would guess that there probably will be at some point. Just a very sad situation all the way around, and you got to think that when the Chiefs traveled to Tampa Bay, <clears throat> that that was on the hearts and minds of at least Coach Reed, Coach Andy Reed, and uh, some of his players for sure. But um, we'll start off, we'll, we'll just go into a big in-depth recap of, of kind of how the game went down and how it turned out to be as lopsided as it did, uh, just because uh, that that outcome was very surprising. But Tampa Bay got the opening kickoff, and they went three and out punted the ball to Kansas City, who on their opening drive, they were able to pick up one first down. Uh, Mahomes ran it on a third and seven, got the first down. They tried a couple long pass attempts after that, but those uh, fell incomplete, so Kansas City punted. So then Tampa gets the ball. They run a couple of quick plays uh, to get to third down. Well, on that third down play, the Chiefs defensive end Frank Clark came up with a huge sack of Tom Brady, and uh, that forced another punt. Now, if you remember my keys to the game last week, I told you that Kansas City needed four sacks on Tom Brady to feel good about their chances. So that was number one, and that would actually end up being Kansas City's only sack. So we'll we'll have more on that here in a little bit. But on the ensuing drive for the Chiefs, they ended up going uh, eight plays, but only getting 31 yards on those eight plays. Mahomes took a deep shot to Tyreek Hill that actually went through Uh, safety Antoine Winfield Jr.'s hands and hit Tyreek Hill in the face mask. 
and bounced off his face masks. And that was at the goal line, pretty much. So if Tyreek Hill was able to catch that and come down with it, that would have been a touchdown. But instead, the Chiefs took a 49-yard field goal to give him the first points of the game and a 3-0 lead. So Tampa Bay gets the ball on that, and they go 75 yards on eight plays. A couple of big passing plays to Antonio Brown and Cameron Brait. That set up an eight-yard touchdown from Tom Brady to Rob Gronkowski to give the Bucks a 7-3 lead. <clears throat> but Kansas City had a big 41-yard kickoff return right after that. Give them great field position. So you're thinking, okay, the Chiefs got a great – they're down 7-3. They got great field position on this kickoff. Here, here's where they take the lead. Well, Kansas City only went six yards on three plays before punting. So it was pretty clear at this point in the game that Tampa Bay's defense was showing up, you know, and just completely putting the clamps on Mahomes and that offense. So Tampa Bay's next drive, they just get the punt. Uh, they have a huge 31-yard completion from Tom Brady to Mike Evans, who just ran right by corner Bashad Breland. I mean, beat him like he stole something. And this put the ball to Kansas City's six-yard line. So Tampa Bay runs somewhat of a trick play where they have an offensive lineman report as eligible and send him in the end zone. And Tom Brady actually threw the pass to the offensive lineman, and it hit him in the hands, and it looked like he was going to come down with it. But Chiefs linebacker Anthony Hitchens actually came in there at the last second to knock the ball away and forced the incomplete pass. So that was a great play by Hitchens. Saved a touchdown. So then they give the ball to Ronald Jones, the Bucks do, which, and he takes it down to the one-yard line, which set up a fourth and goal. So the Buccaneers are up 7-3. They're like, okay, we're going to go for it. Fourth and goal from the one. It's the Super Bowl. Let's do it, right? Well, they give it to Ronald Jones again on a handoff, and Jones was just absolutely popped at the goal line. Uh, he was ruled short, and they actually reviewed it, and the call stood. So it was a huge, huge goal line stand for the Chiefs. Now, the Chiefs get the ball on their own one-yard line. they got to go 99 yards. Uh, they haven't been able to move the ball hardly at all. So uh, normally you wouldn't be concerned about the Chiefs going 99 yards, but in this particular case, uh, it was definitely troublesome. But uh, they did get some breathing room on a 14-yard pass to Hill. And then Mahomes found Travis Kelsey a couple of plays later on what would have been like a 15- or 20-yard first down. And Travis Kelsey is about as sure-handed as, he, as it gets, especially for the tight end position. And it, the ball just hit him in the hands and dropped him. It was completely uncontested. Nobody really around him. Uh, Kelsey just dropped the ball. And that was pretty indicative of how that night went for the Chiefs. But uh, So Kansas City is forced to punt there as well. Now, they, they line up, they get a good punt in, get a, pin Tampa Bay down uh, in, their own, in their own territory. But there was a penalty on the Chiefs, so they actually had to re-punt. And on that punt, it was absolutely shanked, that second punt. It went 29 yards and before going out of bounds. So not only did they have a good punt wiped away, they gave the Buccaneers' outstanding field position because of that 29-yard punt. So the difference in yardage from where the first punt was to where the second punt was was 38 yards. So the Chiefs basically gifted the Buccaneers 40 yards because of that penalty 
on the first punt attempt. That was just a massive play in the game, a huge turning point. So Tampa Bay has it first and 10, great field position. Tom Brady actually threw a pass that was intercept that was tipped and intercepted by Tyron Matthew. And there was a holding penalty that was called defensive holding penalty that was called. It was a really kind of a ticky-tack call that was away from the play. The refs were super active with their whistles in this game and uh, that was on the outside that hold it didn't really affect the play. And here's my thing, like I don't I, I think the refs can can have an impact on the game, but you could call a penalty on every play in football if you really wanted to. It's just what's more egregious than others. And in this particular case, this hold was not real egregious and it was away from the play. So I don't understand why that was the one that was called but nonetheless it was and it extended the drive for Tampa Bay gave them a fresh set of downs they couldn't convert a first down so they tried a 40-yard field goal well the field goal attempt was right down the middle but Kansas City lined up offsides so they got called for offsides which gave the Buccaneers five yards and a first down So a whole new fresh set of downs. Very next play, Tom Brady hits Rob Gronkowski again, this time for a 17-yard touchdown to give the Bucs a 14-3 lead. And again, just another huge swing of momentum in this game because that field goal uh, versus touchdown uh, definitely, definitely had an impact as far as the momentum of this game. So... Tampa Bay kicks the ball off. The Chiefs get it. They finally get Travis Kelsey involved. Uh, the Chiefs go 10 plays and 61 yards on this drive. Four catches for 41 yards for Kelsey on this drive alone. But again, they couldn't convert third down and had to settle for a 34-yard field goal. So at this point, it's 14-6 to Tampa Bay. The Chiefs kicked it off. And after the kickoff return, the Buccaneers only had 55 seconds left on the clock before the first half was over. So Brady decides to take a deep shot to Mike Evans, who again blew right by Bashad Breland. Um, and in in uh, real time, it looked like Breland tripped Mike Evans intentionally. But when they replayed it, it showed that uh, Breland actually got his feet tied up with Evans And so it wasn't necessarily intentional, but it was a trip nonetheless. So Breland was called for a defensive pass interference penalty, which gave the Buccaneers a first and 10 from the 24-yard line of the Chiefs. So just a huge, huge play. That penalty moved him down the field. Uh, Basically gave him a field goal, you know, put him in field goal position um, with one play. So they got first and 10 from the 24 Kansas City gets another defensive pass interference penalty, which gave Tampa Bay another set of downs. So you're starting to see a trend here. Bad, bad, bad penalties by Kansas City have just been, uh, you know, really ruining their chances to to win this game. But um, so first down, ended up getting down to the one-yard line, and then Tom Brady found Antonio Brown for a one-yard touchdown pass on just a gorgeous route by Brown. Uh, he completely undressed Tyron Matthew in the end zone on a little uh, one-yard route. Gave the Buccaneers a 21-6 lead. Now, I think that that drive was probably, those last two drives won Tampa Bay the game. Between the the horrible punt and the 
uh, offsides that gave them a fresh set of downs for them to score. Those two drives basically uh, won Tampa Bay the game just based on how their defense was playing. But that last drive for Tampa Bay, they went four plays, 70 yards, and only 48 seconds. Now they had that huge penalty uh, that on that Mike Evans pass, but uh, they still went 70 yards in 48 seconds to uh, get a touchdown. I even settled for a field goal. So your halftime score is 21-6. Tampa Bay is winning. Now, I guess this is a good time before we get to the second half to talk about that halftime show because I had been hyping it up the last couple episodes. Uh, my guy, The weekend was featured uh, in the show. It was his show. He spent $7 million of his own money on it. And, you know, I listened to his music regularly, so I loved it. Uh, I knew all the songs. I was singing along. Uh, it was a great, uh, great halftime show, great performance. Um, he might not be the flashiest performer that some people were hoping for, uh, but I have certainly seen far worse halftime shows than that. But I've read a lot of negative stuff on social media. Of course, you've seen all the memes with the head bandages and the masks making it look like a jock strap, you know, and for the dancers and just, I've seen a lot of negative stuff and I don't understand where that comes from. I guess if you don't listen to him, you don't really know who he is. I can see why you probably didn't care for it, but, um, I loved it. It, everybody's got their own opinion. So that is what it is. But the second half of the game, uh, you knew Kansas City was going to have to make offensive adjustments because they couldn't pass the ball. They couldn't really move the ball. Um, Tampa Bay's defense was just completely uh, smothering and just would not let anything happen. So Kansas City actually got the ball to start the half, and Clyde Edwards-Elaire had a couple of big runs to start the drive, including a 26-yard run. The drive ended up going 47 yards on seven plays and was capped off with a 52-yard field goal to make it 21-9. to So, again, you see a trend. Kansas City was taking horrible penalties, and on offense they were just settling for field goals, which is very un-Chiefs-like. Uh, we've, we've, just, we've just not seen that. It was actually hard to watch because uh, we're used to the Chiefs just putting up points in bunches and at will, and here they are against the Buccaneers just settling for field goals, basically doing to them what the what they did to the Buffalo Bills in the AFC Championship game. But uh, so yeah, another field goal for Kansas City. So it's twenty one nine. So Tampa Bay's opening drive of the second half, they respond to that field goal with a six play, seventy four yard drive that ended with a twenty seven yard Leonard Fournette touchdown run to make it twenty eight to nine. And at this point, you knew the game was over. Uh, mathematically, Kansas City still had a chance, but based on the actual performance of the Chiefs' offense and how that Buccaneers' defense was playing, you knew the game was over when Fournette punched that in. But And to make matters worse, when Kansas City got the ball back after that touchdown, Mahomes got sacked and then threw an interception to Antoine Winfield Jr. So Tampa Bay takes that interception 52 yards down the field on 11 plays, before they get a 52-yard field goal to make the score 31-9. to So they did cash in on that turnover with a field goal, uh, and that was actually the last scoring play of the game uh, in the third quarter. So Kansas City is down huge, and they come back with an 11-play drive of their own, 64 yards. They had a fourth and nine uh, from inside the 20-yard line, we'll say. And on that fourth down play, 
Mahomes had some serious pressure, just like he had all night. But he ran outside the pocket, avoided a sack, and as he was falling, he was parallel with the ground when he ripped off an unbelievable bullet pass to Daryl Williams, who was standing at either the goal line or the one-yard line. Well, the pass hits Williams in the hands and bounces off and hits the ground, incomplete. But that pass was probably the most incredible pass I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Mahomes was literally parallel to the ground when he let it go, and it was a nice, tight, quick spiral. Um, Should have been caught, and Mahomes was literally doing everything he could to try and get his guys back in the game, but he wasn't getting any help at all from anybody. Uh, His old line was non-existent could not block, and his receivers had stone hands. They couldn't catch. So the game at this point on that fourth down, uh, turnover on downs, you knew the game was really officially over. Um, Tampa Bay ended up putting 42 yards on nine plays up there with a punt on their next drive. So it's still 31-9, to getting late in the game here. Kansas City ends up putting another 10-play, 79-yard drive together. And this time they had a 4th and 10 on this drive. Uh, and on that 4th and 10, Mahomes threw a pass to Tyreek Hill over the middle that would have put him inside the 10-yard the line if it was caught, probably down around the 5. But uh, Antoine Winfield Jr. was there to break up the pass. And after the pass breakup, Winfield Jr. got up and knelt down right by Tyreek Hill. And as Tyreek Hill was getting up from the ground, Winfield threw up the peace sign, which Tyreek Hill has made famous when he blows by defenders on his way to a touchdown. And in fact, Tyreek Hill had actually done that peace sign to Antoine Winfield when he uh, in the Week 12 matchup when he ran right by him for a long touchdown. So just a straight savage move by Winfield. Incredible flex. Uh, honestly, it was probably the best part of the game. Uh, at least I thought it was. Uh, just rookie getting in Tyreek Hill's business. And uh, it was it was pretty funny. So Tampa Bay, they go three and out. Uh, I think they were just in clock kill mode. Gave the ball back to Kansas City, who went nine plays, 48 yards. Uh, and the drive and effectively the game ended when Mahomes threw an interception in the back of the end zone to uh, Devin White, uh, who took a knee. And then Tampa Bay just need the clock out to end the game, and the final score was Tampa Bay 31, Kansas City 9. Just an absolute stunner, and I picked Kansas City to win this game, as did many people, uh, but that just wasn't the case. And not only did they not win the game, it wasn't even close. They just got boat raced. Uh, It was tough to watch. It really was not exciting at all. Uh, It was lopsided, and you know, I mean, I, if I had paid for that, I would want my money back because that was just absolutely atrocious by the Chiefs um, for whatever reason, whether, you know, they had the disadvantage of not being in their home stadium, they had to travel, you know, the off-the-field issue with Andy Reid's kid, you know, whatever it was, they just they forgot the game was there. And I didn't realize that Eric Fisher being gone from that Chiefs offensive line was – going to be as big of a problem as it was, but such was the case. So the MVP of the Super Bowl was, of course, Tom Brady. He won his seventh Super Bowl ring and fifth Super Bowl MVP award. Just really unbelievable. 
And Tom Brady actually has more Super Bowl wins than any single NFL franchise because the Patriots and the Steelers have six. The Cowboys and the 49ers have five rings each. And with the win, Tampa Bay became, uh, became the fifth team in NFL history to actually win the Super Bowl the year after having a losing record. So the Buccaneers were 7-9 and nine last year and uh, finished this year 11-5 and five before, of course, winning the Super Bowl. And this is Tampa Bay's first Super Bowl win since 2002. And the city of Tampa Bay is actually turning into the city of champions uh, because if you recall just a few short months ago, the Tampa Bay Lightning won the Stanley Cup in the NHL. And then just prior to that, the Tampa Bay Rays won the American League and represented them in the World Series. Uh, Now, they did lose to the Dodgers, but... You had a World Series appearance, a Stanley Cup championship, and a Super Bowl victory all within about a four-month, five-month time frame. So just unbelievable for the city of Tampa Bay. Um, Keep looking out for it because all those teams are good and not really going anywhere. So, But during last week's episode, I kind of referenced this earlier, I talked about each team's keys to victory. And for the Buccaneers, I said that their keys to victory were Red zone defense and making Mahomes throw outside the pocket. Well, that's exactly what they did all night long. Uh, Mahomes was throwing outside the pocket regularly. And as far as the red zone defense, the Chiefs were 0 for 3 in the red zone. And Tampa Bay forced a Super Bowl record 29 pressures on Mahomes' 56 total dropbacks, which is 52%. So 52% of the time in this game, Mahomes dropped back, he was pressured. And what's crazy about that is Tampa Bay, they only called five blitzes the entire game. So that's that. all that pressure was just from regular plays and lack of blocking. And Mahomes was running for his life on every play. And like I said, that, that O-line for Kansas City, uh, the lack of Eric Fisher was probably more of an impact than I would have guessed it would have been. But... Uh, Per next-gen stats, uh, Patrick Mahomes ran a total of 497 yards before his passes and sacks, which is the most pre-throw, pre-sack yards by any quarterback in a game this season. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Mahomes literally ran 500 yards before passing the ball or getting sacked in this game. That is outrageous. That that says all you need to know about why the, the Chiefs lost this game. Now, Tampa Bay defensive coordinator Todd Bowles deserves a ton of credit for this this game and how his defense played. They were in Mahomes' kitchen all night long. Uh, he kept two high safeties. He played zone coverage against the best offense in the league. That's a spread offense. And they the Buccaneers did not play zone coverage in the Week 12 matchup, which is why they got burned as many times as they did. But they dropped two safeties back, played zone, And it was a thing of beauty. So, heck of a game by Todd Bowles. And speaking of that Kansas City offense, it was the first time Kansas City did not score an offensive touchdown in a game since November 19th, 2017, which is before Patrick Mahomes was their starting quarterback. So, uh, you can also note that this was the first time that Patrick Mahomes has lost a game by more than one score since he was a starting quarterback at Texas Tech in 2016 so the guy's just been on a roll and this was the ugliest game in uh, over four years for Mahomes now for the Chiefs 
I told you the key to the game for them was getting uh, pressure on Tom Brady and forcing sacks. Well, I said that because Tom Brady coming into the, this game was 2-3 and three in his postseason career when he was sacked four times or more, and he was 31-8 and eight in the postseason when he was sacked three times or fewer. So the magic number for the Chiefs was four sacks. Well, Frank Clark's sack on the second drive was the only sack of the game. They just couldn't get to Brady. Uh, Brady had all day to throw and make plays, and really, he didn't even have to be flashy. Yeah, he had some good numbers, but he didn't really have any any flashy plays or huge passing plays that changed the game, so to speak. I think it was a collective effort by Tampa Bay's defense um, yeah, that kept him in the game and not really had to make the offense force anything. So check this out, though. The Chiefs actually outgained the Buccaneers 350 to 340 in total yards of offense. Patrick Mahomes had more completions and more passing yards than Tom Brady, and the Chiefs actually ran six more offensive plays than the Buccaneers did. So if you would have told me all that, I'd have said Kansas City would have won, at least covering the spread. But that wasn't the case. And I don't even think Tampa Bay expected to shut down the Chiefs like they did. I mean, if there was a bet that said the Chiefs will not score a touchdown in the Super Bowl, are you taking that? I would have bet everything I own that the Chiefs would have scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. So uh, just crazy outcome. You know, I don't think that the outcome itself, the Buccaneers winning, is outrageous. Uh, It is Tom Brady, uh, you know, and they had a good team and they had beaten some Hall of Fame quarterbacks en route to the Super Bowl. So I don't think the Buccaneers winning was by itself a shocker. I think the way in which the game ended was the interesting part and the uh, kind of the hard part to believe. But the big storyline in this game, as far as the outcome, were the penalties. The Chiefs had 11 penalties that resulted in 120 yards for Tampa Bay. And in comparison to Tampa Bay's four penalties for 39 yards. And Tampa Bay was able to cash in two of those bigger uh, penalty calls in that second quarter. And that was the main difference in the game. They got touchdowns because of of, uh, drive-extending penalties. And uh, they were able to get two touchdowns before the end of the half. But we'll go over the box score, just some each team's team leaders and stats. For the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes was 26 of 49 for 270 yards and two interceptions. Uh, Mahomes also added five carries for 33 yards on the ground. Uh, Mahomes was heavily involved in the first few drives running the football. I thought they were going to stick with that, but uh, they did not end up doing that. Now, Clyde Edwards-Elaire, nine carries for 64 yards. Travis Kelsey had a night. 10 catches for 133 yards. That seems to be his norm. Tyreek Hill, 7 catches for 73 yards. Would have had about another 25, 30 yards and a touchdown if he was able to catch that ball instead of letting it bounce off his face. But on the Buccaneers' side, Tom Brady, 21 of 29 for 201 yards and 3 touchdowns. Not real flashy. 21 of 29 is, is very, very good, very accurate, precise throws. 200 yards, you know, I mean, that's that's not a lot. Uh, but the three touchdowns, um, again, is why he won the MVP. 
Leonard Fournette had 16 carries for 89 yards and a touchdown. He had another four catches for 46 yards. He was probably the Buccaneers' uh, other offensive MVP. Ronald Jones had 12 carries for 61 yards. Rob Gronkowski led the Buccaneers' pass catchers with six catches for 67 yards, two touchdowns, and then Mike Evans only had one catch for 31 yards. So looking ahead to next year's NFL season, I I think Kansas City is still the team to beat. I mean, they're getting everybody back. Um, They might improve in free agency, and we'll see who they draft. But uh, Tampa Bay did prove that the NFC runs through them as long as Tom Brady's in town. So uh, Brady said post-game that he's coming back next year. Gronk's looking like he's coming back. So you got to think that a uh, rematch in the Super Bowl of these two teams is is highly probable. Now, I don't know if I'm predicting that here uh, mid-February, um, but I think that it is uh, highly possible that we could see these two teams back here in the Super Bowl next year. Now, I would be remiss if I did not talk about this Tampa Bay Buccaneers Super Bowl parade that went down this week. Uh, it was a boat parade, just like it was with the Tampa Bay Lightning Stanley Cup parade. Uh, of course, with the boat parade, you can have more social distancing, more fans uh, out there attending. Uh, the weather was just beautiful. It was sunny and warm. Uh, it looked like a ton of fun. Tom Brady rolls up to this thing in his brand new $2 million yacht. Um, it was just, it was. The only way I can describe this was it was just a scene. Uh, the Buccaneers, man, those boys got a little aggressive in the suds. Uh, Tom Brady was throwing the Lombardi Trophy from his boat over to Gronk's boat. Scotty Miller dropped Chris Godwin's cell phone in the water. Gronk was dancing shirtless as usual. I mean, just complete mayhem. Um, Tom Brady was just shattered. Uh, he had to be carried off the boat, pretty much. You saw, you've probably seen the picture of his dude, his buddy holding on to him as he's walking off the boat. And then he posted a tweet a little after that, and the tweet literally said, "Quote: Nothing, oh, noting to see her. Dot dot dot. Just a uh, just little avocado tequila." And you had some lowercase letters, some capital letters. That was the complete and utter drunk tweet. Um, that confirmed all of our uh, beliefs. But uh, those boys had a great time. It looked like a hell of a party, and uh, that might be one of the better places to have a party uh, in in sunny Florida, on the water, on a boat. Just a great time. So that wraps up the NFL season for this year, and it's hard to believe that it's already over. Um, You know, this COVID season was uh, very unusual, unlike anything else. And I, like many of you guys, many, many other football fans, am really glad that the NFL was able to put it together and complete a whole season because I think uh, that says a lot about their protocols. And, you know, when we do kind of get back to normal here, maybe this next football season, uh, everything will be good to go. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I'm excited to get into the NFL draft coverage and NFL draft talk that we'll have over the next couple months. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association and give you a standings update here in the NBA. Uh, But before we do that, there was kind of a weird situation that went down with the Brooklyn Nets uh, this past week. Uh, This past Friday, the Brooklyn Nets played the Toronto Raptors. And Nets forward Kevin Durant 
He was initially not available to start the game because someone he had interacted with earlier in the day uh, had an inconclusive COVID test. So the league quickly reviewed it and determined that the test was not positive, so Durant was not required to quarantine. So Durant checks into the game at the 413 mark of the first quarter, but in the third quarter, after playing two quarters, Durant was pulled off the court because the test of that person that he was in contact with returned as positive instead of inconclusive. So Kevin Durant himself had tested negative three times in the 24 hours prior to the game, including two PCR tests the day of the game. So the NBA actually, after the game, announced that Durant was forced to quarantine and that he would miss the Nets' next three games. So um, Kevin Durant is eligible to return Friday, February 12th, after a six-day quarantine. So he's been out all week for the Nets. Interesting, you know, that they made him quarantine and nobody else, especially after he was on the court. So, But the standings update will start off in the Eastern Conference. And as it sits right now, Philadelphia 76ers are still up top in the East at 18-7. and seven. Milwaukee Bucks at 16-9. and nine. Brooklyn Nets 15 and 12. Now they're uh, they had a three-game losing streak before finally getting a win on the board. Boston Celtics are 12 and 11. The Toronto Raptors are five. They're 12 and 13. Indiana Pacers are six. They're also 12 and 13. Charlotte Hornets are are moving up. Uh, they are 12 and 14. Atlanta Hawks are 11 and 13, and they're the eighth spot currently. New York Knicks, 11 and 15. Chicago Bulls, Miami Heat are both 10 and 14. The Heat have put a put together a three-game winning streak after starting off really slow. Uh, Cavaliers are 10 and 16. Magic are 9 and 16. Wizards, 6 and 16. And the Detroit Pistons last in the East at 6 and 18. But the weird thing about the Pistons is that they just beat Brooklyn the other night and have already beaten the Lakers earlier in the year. So two of their six wins have come against two of the better teams in the NBA. But in the Western Conference, uh, Utah Jazz are up top currently at 20-5. and five. Uh, They're riding a five-game winning streak at the moment. The Los Angeles Lakers are second at 20-6. and six. They're on a six-game winning streak. Their last three victories have all been in overtime or double overtime. Uh, one against the Pistons and two against the Oklahoma City Thunder. The L.A. Clippers, they're third at 18-8. and eight. The Phoenix Suns have moved up. They are fourth, 15-9, and nine, and they've strung together four wins in a row. Portland Trailblazers at 13-10. and 10. San Antonio Spurs, 14-11. and 11. Denver Nuggets have kind of slid back a little bit. They're 6-4 and four in their last 10. They're 13-11. and 11. And then the Golden State Warriors are currently the eighth seed at 13 and 12. Uh, they've been looking good. Their offense is finally clicking. Steph Curry's making buckets from everywhere. But just outside the playoffs, you have the Sacramento Kings at 12 and 12, the Memphis Grizzlies at 10 and 10, Dallas Mavericks, my Mavericks, put together a three-game winning streak right now. They're 12 and 14. Had a big win last night against the Hawks. New Orleans Pelicans are 11 and 13. Houston Rockets 11 and 13. Oklahoma City Thunder 10 and 14. And then holding up the rear in the Western Conference would be the Minnesota Timberwolves at 6 
and 19. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, and we'll get into a standings update here in just a minute. But before we do, you remember that trade, blockbuster trade I talked about a couple weeks ago between the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Winnipeg Jets, in which Patrick Laine and Pierre-Luc Dubois, the second and third overall pick in the uh, 2017 NHL drafts, got traded for each other. Well, Laine, Patrick Laine from the Blue Jackets, uh, he actually got benched in Monday night's game this past week against the Carolina Hurricanes. Patrick Laine's final shift came with 6:19 left in the second period. Now, head, co- head coach for the Blue Jackets, John Tortorella, he initially didn't comment as to why he had benched Laine. Uh, he said they were going to keep it internal, uh, but then the next day it came out that Patrick Laine was actually benched for being uh, verbally disrespectful to a member of the coaching staff. Uh, not because of performance issues. Now, part of the reason Pierre-Luc Dubois wanted out of Columbus was because he kept getting benched by Tortorella. And so you get Patrick Laine, who is your best young player, immediately, as soon as he steps into the locker room on his new team, and he gets benched for being disrespectful. So I don't know what Tortorella's got going in Columbus, but that's uh, that's definitely a nasty situation there in Columbus. But we'll we'll get into the standings here. The Scotia North Division, Toronto Maple Leafs at eleven two and one, Montreal Canadiens eight three and two, Edmonton Oilers eight and seven, Winnipeg Jets seven four and one, Calgary Flames six five and one, Vancouver Canucks six and ten, and Ottawa Senators two eleven and one. In the Mass Mutual East Division. Boston Bruins, 9-1-2. Philadelphia Flyers, 8-3-2. Washington Capitals, 6-3-3. New York Islanders, 5-4-2. Pittsburgh Penguins, 5-5-1. New York Rangers, 4-5-3. New Jersey Devils, 4-3-2. And uh, Buffalo Sabres bringing up the rear in the Mass Mutual East, 4-4-2. In the Discover Central Division, Tampa Bay Lightning, 9-1-1. Florida Panthers, 7-1-2. Coming out strong this year. Uh, Chicago Blackhawks, 6-4-4. Columbus Blue Jackets, 6-5-3. Carolina Hurricanes, 7-3. Dallas Stars, 5-2-3. Nashville Predators, 5-8. Detroit Red Wings, 3-9-2. Uh, Tampa Bay is in that division. Tampa Bay is on a six-game winning streak, by the way, to just really kind of give them some separation in the Central Division. Uh, Blackhawks have also won three in a row, including two over my Dallas Stars here this week. Uh, but in the Honda West Division, Vegas Golden Knights eight one and one. They're also on a three-game winning streak. St. Louis Blues seven four and two. Colorado Avalanche seven three and one. They haven't had any games this week due to COVID stuff. Arizona Coyotes have strung together three wins in a row. They're at 6-5-1. and one. Anaheim Ducks, 5-6-3. and three. Minnesota Wild, 6-5. San Jose Sharks, 5-5-1. Five, five and, and the LA Kings at 3-6-3. Three, and, three. and again, we're still early enough to uh, 
not really have any definitive answers as to who's going to be in the playoffs, but we are starting to see a couple teams that just look like they are not going to be anywhere near the playoffs. Um, so we'll uh, stay tuned on that. This season, again, is only 56 games in the NHL. Most teams have played uh, at this point uh, between 12 to 14 games. Some have played a couple less than that just because of the COVID protocols, but uh, it's it's looking like it's going to be a pretty competitive uh, NHL season here, even though it's shortened season. But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island, and we'll start off in Major League Baseball. Just some free agent signings to get caught up on. Uh, outfielder Marcel Ozuna re-signed with the Atlanta Braves on a four-year, $65 million deal. Deal has a fifth-year option that would take it to $80 million. And uh, again, just a great signing by the Braves in order to keep pace in that NL East that I think is going to be the best division in baseball. They have to sign their good young talent, and Osuna is a part of that. So um, all-star catcher Yadier Molina, his 18th season in the MLB, and he re-signed with the St. Louis Cardinals on a one-year deal, will probably be his last uh, in the MLB. He's uh, made all-star games, World Series, uh, gold, you know, gold glove awards. He's just a uh, future Hall of Famer. He's got r- nothing left really to prove, so he just signs on a one-year deal. But there's been a few trades this week in Major League Baseball. First one we'll talk about is between my Texas Rangers and the Oakland A's. Rangers traded longtime shortstop Elvis Andrews to the Oakland A's uh, in exchange for Chris Davis and a pair of prospects. Now, Rangers also sent a minor league catcher and $13.5 million. So now, as a Rangers fan, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, I mean, Elvis has been a mainstay of the Rangers infield for the last 12 years. Uh, He's helped us get to a World Series in 2010. Uh, Just a real fan favorite. But I understand why they traded him. They need the cap room. Uh, Elvis was due to make $28.5 million over the next couple of years. So they had to dump that. And uh, in order to improve the team now uh, and over the next offseason. And, and you're getting back a power hitter in Chris Davis, uh, who's actually moving from a, a pitcher-friendly ballpark in Oakland to a hitter-friendly ballpark here in Arlington. And Chris Davis has actually hit 40 home runs in three out of the last five seasons. So he's going to be a great addition to the lineup um, that already has uh, home run mashing Joey Gallo in it. So uh, that'll be fun to watch there with those two hitting balls out of the park uh, for the next few years. Uh, But another trade was the uh, LA Angels and the St. Louis Cardinals. Now the Cardinals, of course, if you remember, they just uh, acquired Nolan Arenado from the Rockies uh, a week and a half ago. But now they dished off outfielder Dexter Fowler to the LA Angels in exchange for a player to be named later and cash considerations. And the Cardinals actually gave the Angels $12.75 million to help cover a majority of Fowler's 2021 salary. So good trade for the Angels. Uh, Fowler's a good speedy leadoff hitter in a lineup that's already protected by Mike Trout. Then we had a three-team trade that went down the other night. Involved Boston Red Sox, Kansas City Royals, and New York Mets. Outfielder Andrew Benatendi goes from the Red Sox to the Kansas City Royals. The Royals get, uh, well, Royals outfield prospect Khalil Lee. He's the number eighth rated prospect in their system. He goes over to the New York Mets, and then outfielder Frenchie Cordero goes back to the Red Sox. Now, Boston also gets a pitching prospect 
and a player to be named later from the Mets. But some other MLB news, uh, Major League Baseball announced that they have deadened the baseballs this year after a record-setting number of home runs the last couple of seasons. So uh, over the last two years, in 2019, there was a home run hit in 6.6% of the at-bats, and in the shortened season last year uh, of 2020, 6.5% of at-bats had home runs. So basically uh, the same number of um, ratio of home runs per at-bats. But uh, these new baseballs were designed um, and lab-tested, and they found out that these baseballs will actually fly one to two feet shorter uh, on balls hit over 375 feet. So uh, in addition to those baseballs, there's five more MLB stadiums that have added uh, humidors to their stadiums. So that gives Major League Baseball 10 out of 30 stadiums that are equipped with uh, humidity-controlled spaces. So again, that affects the flight path of the ball as well. So just trying to make it to where there's not, I guess, baseball's not happy with the number of home runs that have been being hit, and they're trying to lessen that uh, any way that they can. But the Major League Baseball Players Association did reach an agreement with Major League Baseball on the terms of the 2021 season. Now, the highlights are the fact that we will have seven-inning doubleheaders, just like we did in the shortened season, and we will also have runners on second base to start extra innings, just like we did again last year in the shortened season. Now, the two rules that I was wanting implemented from last season were the universal designated hitter and the expanded playoffs. Well, neither one of those got approved in this agreement, so we will not be seeing a universal designated hitter, nor will we be seeing an expanded playoffs. Now, under that uh, new health and safety protocol, Major League Baseball players are not going to be required to get the COVID vaccine. However, it is optional and they are encouraging it. But in that agreement, because of that, players cannot attend gatherings of more than 10 people. Um, No indoor dining at bars or lounges, even if they serve food. And uh, while they're on the road in their hotels, players actually need to have permission to leave the hotel Uh, on their road trips. So some pretty strict regulations there for Major League Baseball, but uh, that's what was agreed upon between the players and the Players Association. Um, So we'll move on to the National Football League. And this past week, the 2020 NFL Honors Awards were handed out over the weekend. Your 2020 NFL MVP, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Third time winning the award Sixth player ever to win it three times, and I thought that was interesting. I, I didn't realize that there were six people that won, that have won MVP at least three times. That seems like a, a a large number. But your offensive player of the year was Tennessee Titans running back Derrick Henry. He went over two thousand yards rushing, and became the sixth player in NFL history to lead the NFL in rushing yards and rushing touchdowns in back to back years. Uh, defensive player of the year. Los Angeles Rams defensive tackle Aaron Donald. Uh, He's just simply the best defensive player in the league. He finished with 13.5 sacks, four forced fumbles, and one fumble recovery. Your offensive rookie of the year, Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert. Uh, He played in 15 games, finished with 4,336 passing yards to go with 31 touchdowns and only 10 interceptions. 
exceptional year by the rookie there, Herbert, in L.A. He's got a bright future in the league. Your defensive rookie of the year, Washington football team defensive end Chase Young. Uh, guy's just a monster. He had seven and a half sacks, four forced fumbles, three fumble recoveries, and one touchdown to go along with 12 quarterback hits. Uh, guy's just going to be a force to be reckoned with for years to come. Uh, the comeback player of the year was Washington football team quarterback Alex Smith. Uh, he ended up playing the final few games as a starting quarterback uh, after not playing football at all 693 days uh, when he had suffered that horrific leg injury. Uh, he had 17 surgeries. Doctors told him he wasn't going to be able to walk again and that he could possibly have his leg amputated. But nonetheless, almost 700 days after that, he came back to the field and he led the Washington football team to the NFC East division title. So definitely well-deserved a comeback player of the year award there for Alex Smith. Now the coach of the year uh, was Cleveland Browns head coach Kevin Stefanski. He's a first-year head coach. The Browns went 11-5 and in the regular season. They had a wild-card playoff appearance, first playoff appearance in over 20 years. And the Browns actually won their wild-card playoff game against the Steelers uh, in beatdown fashion uh, before losing to the Chiefs in the divisional round. But still a great year for Stefanski and the Browns. He's definitely got them going in the right direction. But the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year award was Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. Uh, he's just a, he's obviously a great player, but he's a great dude. Um, he has charities set up around the Seattle area. He goes and visits hospitals and sick kids regularly. Um, just a great person on and off the field, so well-deserving of that. Now, the NFL Hall of Fame class of 2021 was also announced this week, and we got a couple of first ballot guys. There's eight total selections here uh, from this year. The first was uh, quarterback Peyton Manning. Of course, he was from the Colts. Indianapolis Colts and Denver Broncos quarterback. Played from 1998 to 2015. First ballot selection. Uh, made 14 Pro Bowls. Won five NFL MVPs. Two Super Bowls, just uh, obviously one of the best quarterbacks to ever get it done. Uh, the next selection was wide receiver Calvin Johnson, played for the Detroit Lions from 2007 to 2015. Very short career um, in comparison to these other guys, but it was a first ballot selection. In those shortened, uh, in that shortened career, he did make six Pro Bowls. Was a four-time All-Pro. Uh, he led the NFL in receiving yards twice. And um, he retired out of frustration with the Lions organization. But he had 11,619 yards and 83 touchdowns in only 135 games. And he still holds the NFL record for receiving yards in a single season with 1,964. So the next selection was defensive back Charles Woodson. Played for the Oakland Raiders, Green Bay Packers from 1998 to 2012. Uh, he made nine Pro Bowls. He won a Super Bowl. He's also won uh, Defensive Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, and he led the NFL in interceptions in a season twice. In fact, he has 65 career interceptions, 13 defensive touchdowns, and 254 games. Uh, that's a great number. Uh, next selection was guard Alan Fanica, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
New York Jets and Arizona Cardinals in his career span from 1998 to 2010. He also made nine Pro Bowls and won a Super Bowl, um, 206 career games. Next selection is safety John Lynch, who played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Denver Broncos. His career spanned from 1993 to 2007. He's actually the current general manager of the San Francisco 49ers. But when he was playing, Lynch did make nine Pro Bowls. He won a Super Bowl and uh, finished with uh, over 1,000 tackles, 13 sacks, and 26 picks in 224 career games. The last few selections, wide receiver Drew Pearson. He played for the Dallas Cowboys from 1973 to 1983. Three-time All-Pro. He won the Super Bowl. He's in the Cowboys' ring of honor. And a great addition to that. He's been waiting for the call for many years, so good for Drew Pearson. Um, A coach made it into the Hall of Fame. That's Tom Flores. He coached the Raiders and the Seahawks. Um and he was a two-time Super Bowl champion and career record of 105-90, and which is not that impressive, um, but he did win two Super Bowls, and he's the first minority coach in the NFL to lead the team to a Super Bowl win. So um, with that being said, great for Tom Flores to get in. Now, uh, the next guy is a scout. Final, final selection to the Hall of Fame class of 2021 is scout Bill Nunn who was a scout for the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1968 to 2013. Just incredible span of time. Uh, Bill actually died in 2014 at the age of 90, but he was one of the major scouts that played a vital role in building that Steelers dynasty in the 70s where they won a few Super Bowls. So congrats to the Hall of Fame class of 2021. Uh, Some other quick uh, NFL news. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, he had surgery uh, on his toe this week to repair the turf toe that he sustained in that game against the Browns. Uh, He's expected to miss most of the offseason, but he will be back and ready to go by training camp. Now, going back to the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl broadcast drew a total audience of 96.4 million viewers, which was actually the least-watched Super Bowl since 2007 when the Colts and Bears only had 93.2 million. And in comparison to that, the most-watched Super Bowl was in 2015 when the Patriots played the Seahawks. That was 114.4 million. So uh, it's about 18 million less this year than it was that year. But a couple... Uh, We'll go over to the National Basketball Association. A couple of quick notes there. There was a trade between the New York Knicks and the Detroit Pistons. Detroit traded guard Derrick Rose to the Knicks in exchange for Dennis Smith Jr. and a second-round pick in this year's draft. I think it's a good deal for both teams. The Pistons are in the middle of a rebuild, so they get a younger, more athletic point guard in Dennis Smith Jr. while also getting a second-round pick to help with the rebuild. And the Knicks have been kind of hanging around that eight seed all season. So if they can keep that up and sneak in, they're definitely in win-now mode. And I think Derrick Rose helps their immediate chances of winning and making the playoffs more so than uh, Dennis Smith does. But the strangest story in the NBA uh, it deals with my Dallas Mavericks. And they announced this past week they stopped playing the National Anthem before their home games and didn't plan to play it in the immediate future. Uh, the National Anthem had not been played at any of the 13 preseason or regular season games this year here at the American Airlines Center, 
which didn't get noticed until 13 games in, which again is very strange. Well, after that story got released, Mavs owner Mark Cuban, of course very outspoken, he made the announcement that the NBA, uh, the NBA is, you know, uh, about unity and we're trying to open people's eyes and, you know, we're not disrespecting the country. We still have the flag posted and, you know, whatever the case is. But the NBA basically came out and said, uh, NBA's official statement was, quote, with NBA teams now in the process of welcoming back fans into their arenas, all teams will play the national anthem in keeping with longstanding league policy. So that squashed that. The Mavs played the Hawks last night in primetime on ESPN, and the national anthem was played because that statement from the NBA had been released earlier in the day. So um, moving for, not a good look for the Dallas Mavericks at all. Um, every every other team plays the national anthem. Now there's been some debate on whether or not that needs to continue across all sports and, whether, and why we even play the national anthem, but it dates back to World War One, and so that's kind of the time frame we've been looking at with sports playing the national anthem. That's It's been a while, so um, I think it's a good tradition. Uh, I'm all for honoring our country uh, and the soldiers and uh, military personnel that have laid their life out there to allow those athletes the freedom to do what they do. But uh, we'll move over to the PGA Tour real quick. Uh, quick note from the PGA Tour. Uh, the PGA of America, they announced that they are going to allow distance measuring devices at its three major championships for the first time ever. And these devices, of course, are commonly called range finders and are most often used, you know, in recreational golf and amateur golf. Now, the range finders are only going to be allowed at the events run by the PGA of America. So that's the PGA Championship for the men, the Women's PGA Championship, and the Senior PGA Championship. And as per Rule 4.3a in the PGA, the devices must only give you a distance reading and that any setting that measures elevation has got to be turned off. So they can't use the elevation only the distance. And now normally, the caddies and the players carry some detailed yardage books, and then they just use the devices in the practice rounds to check those distances during the tournament. But the men's PGA Championship is set for May 20 to 23 at the Ocean Course in Kiwa Island, South Carolina. So that'll be uh, interesting to see that. I'm looking forward to that. Um, not too often you get to see the rangefinders out there in, in PGA golf, but such is going to be the case there. But we'll move over to NCAA basketball. Just a quick note here from women's basketball. Uh, the NCAA announced that the entire women's March Madness tournament is going to be played entirely in San Antonio, Austin, and San Marcos, Texas. The Final Four was originally scheduled to be played in San Antonio, so they just moved the entire tournament to the San Antonio area, which of course would include Austin and San Marcos, in order to create a bubble and reduce the travel amongst the teams, which, if you recall, this is exactly what the NCAA did with the men's tournament when they moved it exclusively to the Indianapolis area. So I think it's a great idea. It's college basketball's version of a bubble. You limit your travel. You limit your possible exposure, especially during the tournament. 
Um, March Madness, of course, did not happen last year on either side, men's or women's. So the colleges are definitely wanting to make that happen, obviously for the revenue that it generates, but also for the kids and for the schools to uh, try and chase after that national championship. But that's going to wrap up the 27th episode of the Sports Island podcast. I appreciate you all listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, you tell a friend about it. Uh, and as always, this podcast is available uh, on any major podcast platform. Uh, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, you can also find the podcast on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. Uh, hope you all have a good week. Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.